In case you missed it, on News Talk, a look back at the week that was. What extras would make your job a dream job? We're here outside Nutgrove Shopping Centre in Dublin. For you, what would your dream job be? For me, at the moment, um, I work for Primark and I'm working five mornings a week, 10 to 2. And that is my dream job. That's your dream job, That's 10 to 2. So you don't have to two. get up too early and you no. get to go home after lunch. And I have plenty of time to do anything I need to do after work. Yeah, bit of fast fashion, bit of banter with the customers. It's a lovely place to work. They look after the staff really well. Good holidays, good pay, good working conditions. Well, we are student midwives, so midwifery. <laughs> So that's what you wanted to do. You wanted to be a midwife and you're becoming one. One year to go. Yeah. And I mean, that has serious job satisfaction, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's very crazy at the minute, but no, it has yeah. a nice... Uh... It's very rewarding. What about coffee machines? Having good tea, having good perks like that, pensions. Does that all help? A coffee machine? <laughs> we don't really get coffee machines <laughs> no. in the job. Uh... Although they would definitely have. With the long shifts, definitely have to have a few cups of coffee <laughs> <Yeah>. then. <laughs> Henry McKean reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, a quick question for you. Is there a difference between negotiating and haggling? Well, take a listen to this. Now, earlier uh, in the week, we were talking about haggling and whether haggling is a lost art. Well, it turns out that Dara McCullough, farmer, broadcaster and columnist with the Irish Independent, is a haggler. Extreme haggler. Is that right, Dara? Well, I don't know about an extreme haggler, but I think every farmer has a bit of the haggler in them. They have to because they're buying and selling basically from their knee high to a grasshopper. Um, And I can remember the first lesson I got in haggling from my dad. You know, he kind of said it with almost like a dead straight face. You know, when when somebody um, makes you an offer of a price on something, you come back with the complete opposite. Go extreme. Don't worry about embarrassing them. You go with an extreme anchor the other way. And I, I was there kind of going, cheapers, well, what happens if I make them angry? Don't worry about making them angry. You're just getting them into your ballpark. And that was my first lesson in Haglin. And it actually served me pretty well um, until I um, attempted to uh, get married. All <laughs> right, was, all was, right. I was on my honeymoon and um, we were in Indonesia and I was having a great time uh, working my way around the local markets, haggling for this, that and everything else. Uh, I, I, the, the straw that almost broke the, ha- the camel's back. Let me assure you uh, and your listeners that I'm still married. Uh, right, so it's OK. okay. This ha- story has a happy ending. For the moment, but... for the moment. <laughs> Um, I started to haggle for sunbeds and apparently this was just a step too far and for God's sake, Dara, would you quit? And it was that moment when I realised, jeepers, I'm just, I enjoy, you know, um, arguing the toss over something and for a large proportion of the population out there, there is nothing more mortifying on earth. Oh, I I am in that part of the population there I have uh, cold sweats at the thought of, of haggling and I even remember uh, like as a kid being on holidays uh, maybe were we in Tenerife or Lanzarote somewhere and you know the lads on the beach and I wanted to buy a pair of sunglasses or something off them uh, and my parents telling me yeah but don't pay whatever they ask you first like this is there's a whole yeah there's, the there's a whole price, merry right? dance that we have to go yeah. through you know what i mean and they 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 know they expect you to come back and say a, a cheaper deal and no i came back paid sticker price whatever your man asked for straight up here you go just get it over and done with i just i felt almost ashamed to be trying to haggle with them uh, um, I, I like yeah yeah do you do you get a kick out of getting a cheaper deal Absolutely. Who doesn't get a kick out of uh, getting a deal? But you've got to get over. I mean, humans were naturally hardwired to avoid conflict. Right. And so a lot of people, I think like yourselves, will be kind of thinking, jeepers, if I come in with a counter offer here, I'm in danger of upsetting the other person. Whereas in reality, they're probably half expecting you to come back, certainly in a kind of a market situation where, you know, we're not talking about going down to Tesco and, and haggling over the price of a loaf of bread. But, you know, if you go into a car dealership, uh, I think if I was a car salesman and you didn't haggle with me or 
attempt some kind of bargaining, I would be I'd be laughing all the way to the door. Right. So we need to get over the idea that, you know, we're going to offend. Um, and you don't just because you're haggling, it doesn't have to be in an offensive way. You know, it, is is that the best you can do for me on that? You can ask that in a nice way um, that it doesn't have to be offensive. And if they say, yes, that's the best I can do. Well, OK, you've asked a question. I mean, you can come at them another way. And I suppose it was after that episode on my honeymoon that I realized, OK, you know what? Actually, there's a lot more to negotiating than just haggling, you know, uh, mm. offer, counter offer. Uh, let's meet in the middle and split the difference kind of thing. Life is laced with, you know, negotiation, you know, who is doing the washing up after the dinner this evening. Former broadcaster and columnist Darren McCullough. From the heart shoulder with Kieran Cudahy. Now, I think it's fair to say that the latest round of restrictions and growing threat of the Omicron variant has seen national morale plummet a little bit and caused patients to fray. So how can we maintain our mental resilience in the days and weeks to come? Well, who better than Stella O'Malley, psychotherapist and author, uh, to uh, uh, talk us through that. Um, Stella, how concerned are you about the nation's mental well-being at this point? I'm I'm very concerned about the nation's mental health. I, I really think that we're focusing on physical health over mental health for now 21 months, and I see the impact of it. I'm a, I'm a psychotherapist, and every single day I'm getting emails, every single day, where they will say, the people who are writing to me say, since COVID hit, since the pandemic, since the restrictions, everything got worse, everything got harder, it tipped me over the edge. I'm hearing this all the time, and when somebody's mental health hits, they think it's their own private tragedy. They don't realise that this is happening on a societal level, and they honestly think it's their own mental failing on some level. And I'm really, really concerned about it. I'm really concerned that there's too much emphasis on physical health and not enough room for our mental health. Okay, what, what, should, we, what, sh- what should happen? What should we be doing? What should the government be doing? needs to start focusing on the fact that we you can't keep on putting weight on people mental pressure on people and expect us not to crash on some level and you know i do know obviously we all know that tony holland is a as a household name and well done to him his job is to focus on physical health why do i not know who's focusing on mental health where is the household name equivalent for COVID and mental health? Because I'm not seeing them every night telling us what we should be doing and how we need to look after our well-being. Because we need to have the equivalent. Because you can't just keep on pushing us and dismissing mental health, especially children. I don't think they're dismissing it's, it's, mental health, though, to be fair to them, are they? Well, are, are you hearing daily bulletins about our mental health? Are you hearing anything about our mental health when we hear about COVID restrictions? Well, uh, to, like, uh, to be fair, it's kind of harder to measure mental health than to measure case numbers. Um, that's debatable because you certainly see mental health issues. Oh, sorry, I'm not, I'm not, doubt, I'm not doubting... Domestic I'm, violence I'm, and when you hear about yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. the issues around depression and the, the, the numbers around anti-anxiety medication, there are ways to measure it. Yeah. And the suggestion is that the the data is, is suggesting that actually we're not doing very well at all, that it is impacting. And it's starting to impact in the long term now. We've moved out of a short term where, honestly, you can put in you can put in certain measures for your mental health. You can push us because we are resilient as people. So what, what kind of stuff should, should the government be doing then in that respect? Well, they told us last summer to have a summer outdoors, and I thought that was really good for our mental health. And I thought, thank God, they're finally giving us some space to have some joy because it's essential to our well-being. And then no sooner did we have some summer outdoors and that was crushed in on very quickly. And we were told, stop this summer outdoors, no more drinking outside and things like that. And these, these are people who are in their 20s who've literally, they've lost their leavings, they've lost the first year in college, they're in the second year in college, they're still in their mother's bedroom or their own bedroom, not their mother's bedroom, in their mother's house, mm. trying to kind of have a college experience. They they do need to socialise. They do need to meet new they people. Are, they are socialising. Like, I mean, they are. And they should. But they are socialising. Thank God they are. I'm, yeah. I'm really glad they are. But it's very restricted. And it's, it's, it's a suppose if I'm, if I'm... To say who am I most anxious about, it would be the children. That I really do think that there's an awful lot of young children who are incredibly anxious. Yeah. Incredibly anxious about COVID. When one of their parents gets it, 
they go into an existential crisis that we don't because they've been told about the killer virus. They've been told to wash their hands and to do everything right. And then if one of their parents gets COVID, their, their brain goes haywire mm. because they've been told that's the most important thing is you don't get it. And when the two parents get it, it tips them over the edge. We have taught them that. And we taught them that for a reason. And there was a societal reason, and I get it. But at this stage, we're going to have to bring some room into the fact that if you keep on pushing them, if you keep on saying you can't go to Pantos and you can't have play dates and we can't, and we're 21 months, which may I say now, for a 10-year-old, I, I, have to, a, just, I have, to, I have to interject there. They're not saying you can't do those things. They're just saying try and limit what you do. I mean, is the, I know, and uh, is, I hope they won't say it because yeah. I'm very, very concerned that that's the direction it's going. Yeah. Because... They're starting to make noises, and that's the way COVID has been done in Ireland since the beginning, is noises are made, then they give a little bit less restrictions, and then they give a little bit more. And it's the grinding pressure, continuous pressure, is bad for our mental health. Shane Coleman on News Talk Breakfast. We left the Commonwealth in 1949, and that, that finished us with the Commonwealth. So therefore, we don't really have a, a, an interest as such in it. Quite honest we don't. I mean, we left in '49. Obviously, our biggest trading partner is still the United Kingdom. Yeah. The United Kingdom is still a part of a quarter of this land. So they're there. Have you ever considered rejoining? Uh, no. no. Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. And why is it that these countries hang on to have the Queen as their head of state? Why? I don't know. They don't know uh, anything else, I, I think. There, there must They've be some sort of a financial. Uh, it's a financial trade benefit. Uh, yes, yeah. yeah. I think it's financial as well. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Definitely. Yeah. But, um, would be. No, slavery was everywhere anyway, and the British weren't the only people involved in it. There was a lot more countries yeah. as well. So. Yeah. And do you think the monarchy is outdated? Um, what do you think of the monarchy? I think you'll always have a monarchy in yeah. Britain. It's been there so long. I don't. I think the Queen, for for no matter how old she is, is very modern. Yeah. She's moving with the times, and I'm sure. I think Charles will make a very good king. Possibly the younger people will be. More and have again. a broader yeah. take on things, you so know. Do you think Britain will be a monarchy forever? They, they will I'd say they'll be a monarchy for a very, very yeah. long time. Yeah. Yeah. Can't well, they have been ending. for how long? Yeah, <laughs> Since years. King John in 1126 <laughs> or whatever. No, I, you know? I, I wouldn't have a problem with them anyway, do you know what I mean? But yeah, long may they continue. You know, yeah, I think yeah, she's a yeah. very dedicated think, woman. Like, it, 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 it's very good um, insofar as that the work that they do for a start, they do a lot of good work. They do an awful lot of good work. And as regards to the monarchy itself, it's, it's a great stabilising factor in England. And the people themselves are, whoa, real royalists. And they do you know. roll out the Queen, for example, they do. Yes. during the pandemic. They Demi- rolled her out. They roll her out. And to speak to the nation. nation. Yeah, and she does good. She does. And we watch it. We, we do like her Christmas speech. Yeah. I have no problem with the monarchy. No. I'm a big no, historian. No, no. like history. just the Queen as the head of... No, well, she here. wouldn't be head of here now, here, but no, I mean, no, I'm... No. I don't you respect know, it? I respect yes, her, yes, and I yeah. don't know what the people in Northern Ireland would like. A lot of them would like not to have her, but then again, a lot of them do, so yeah. there's no yeah. answer to that problem, I don't think. In Barbados, Rihanna, she's been made a national hero, and they said that she shines like a diamond. Who could she our does, national hero be? Yeah. She's probably richer than a Ernest diamond Ernest mine anyway, so... She is a billionaire. Ernest, hero. Let me she's see. a good ambassador <laughs> for her country. Yeah. I couldn't find one. You couldn't find one? No. Definitely not. I think it's traditional sort of more than anything, and she's a fabulous woman. You know, she really is. I mean, I'm Irish, but I still love to read about them. So you still respect her as a I human do. being? I do, the whole family. And the fact that so many countries out there, do you know how many countries are still in the Commonwealth? Uh, about six, is it? 54. 54, good God. And why is it that Canada, New Zealand, Australia still have the Queen as their head of state? I don't know. I have no idea. So Ireland left the Commonwealth in 1948. It became a republic in 1948. Yeah. It left in 49. For you, Northern Ireland is very much still part of the Commonwealth. Well, we want Ireland. We want the north of Ireland. We want it all to be one country. And if it became one country, do you think Ireland would it'll, then it'll rejoin us, the Commonwealth? It would cost us an awful lot of money if we rejoined. You would like to see United Ireland? Huh? You'd like to see, to see the country like united? Just, it's our country, and that's it. You know, they took it. Well, they didn't give it back. They didn't give it back. Does anyone give anything back nowadays? Henry McKean reporting for Moncrief. On Friday, Lunchtime Live discussed the challenges facing care homes for the elderly under the new COVID regime. Here's Michelle. People might not realise, yes, it's 
it's fantastic that they're all vaccinated and they're being looked after. The care home that my mother was in, I couldn't fault the staff. My God, they worked. They were troopers. Frontline yeah. staff, as, as usual, are troopers. Um, they are working under terrible conditions because they're having to still wear masks and gloves. Now, when you have a care home that a lot of the residents there have dementia and you're trying to stop them going into a meltdown, you know, for example, they have a little nap after their lunch and they wake up, they get there immediately disorientated and confused where they are and a staff member would have to get in there really quick. You have a short window of a few minutes to get in there really quickly to calm them down and reassure them, etc., etc. If you miss that, then they they get so scared, they could start screaming and they upset everybody. Okay. And, of course, everybody gets upset that they're upset. Now, can you imagine trying to do that same, they calm them down with a mask on and Eye contact um, and facial, obviously, the full face contact. And also, um, you need to hold their hand and rub it. Skin contact is very important. That's the only way you can get through to them. You can't just be talking to them. You have to have that. And the staff, and I've spoken to all levels of staff in the nursing home that my mum was in, and they said, it's, it's so difficult. Um, we were having a lot of meltdowns all the time because we can't, do it the same way we did it when we didn't have to wear masks. Mm, the extra precautions. And they um, they said that it upsets them dreadfully as well because it's just, it's extra work obviously for them, but it upsets them as well because they know this uh, resident say that's just, you know, going into, into a meltdown is going to really be upset and it, it's traumatising for the resident and it's traumatising for the staff as well. But they're fully vaccinated. They've had their boosters. So I don't understand. And that's what we've all been talking about. Why are they still doing that practice? So we actually started asking each other, would, how could we get around this or stop this? And would we, maybe it's a, a case of signing a disclaimer and saying, look, if, if we're quite happy if our loved one um, contracts COVID, we're all right with that. We're not going to sue you and we're not, you know, we'll just let it go. On average, once you, um, an elderly person goes into a nursing home, um, it's about two years they have. Now, obviously, some will live longer and some will, won't make the two years. So they're in the twilight of the years. And these are the people who were the backbone of the country. And they're just being forgotten about now. And people probably don't understand what's going on. So I'll give you an example. In hmm. my mum's home... There was a hairdresser that would come in, a physiotherapist, therapy dogs, preschool children used to come in for visits. They had monthly outings. The forget-me-not choir, all of that has been stopped. They have not been allowed back in. And I mean, a physiotherapist isn't, isn't even allowed in, even though they're vaccinated. We're down to visits. Um, you know, it would be to a one-hour visit twice a week. And you go in and to visit your loved one and if they happen to have dementia and they're having a, a nap, you can't wake them up. You have to let them wake up naturally. So there's your, your allotted time and it's gone. And then you have to wait maybe four days for the next visit. There's a, uh, here's an, another example. There's a, a lady um, in the nursing home that was, um, has dementia. Um, but after the first lockdown, she became nonverbal. And this was a chatterbox. And she used to sing songs and she won't do it now. Michelle, who called Lunchtime Life on Friday afternoon. What's the feeling among unionists and loyalists on the street? You know, the non-nationalist general public, are, are they united in their opposition to the protocol? Yeah, well, I think that remains to be seen. There has been a number of protests held across Northern Ireland's However, the numbers that turned out for these was small, to say the least. Now, the Orange Order also ran an anti-protocol declaration over the weekends. They opened 250 properties across the north, their Orange Halls, on Saturday to facilitate the signing of this petition. And the Orange Order estimates that tens of thousands of people have now signed it. Now, I went along to the Sandy Row Orange Hall in Belfast on Saturday um, I spent well over an hour there. Uh, the petition was being signed by people on tables covered in union flags. 
Now, there certainly wasn't people queuing out the door to sign this when I was there. In fact, in the hour or so I spent there, I think only seven people came into the hall to sign this petition. However, at the same time, the Orange Order have said that you can also sign it online. So that might be where the thousands of people they're claiming have signed it are coming from. Now, I did speak to these people who were signing it. And they told me that they feel that they are now losing their British identity because of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Northern Ireland voted to get out of Europe, Brexit. But we're the only part of the United Kingdom that's still in Europe, in the single market. They promised us there'd be no border. Now we have a border in the Irish Sea. I've been looking at the, the bullet points on the Orange Lodge website. There's three points of why people should sign this petition and yes. why people should be against yes. the Northern Ireland Protocol. Reading them, to me, this seems to be more about identity than it does about the economy. Would well, that be right? Is, it is identity, yes. We don't want to lose our Britishness, right? But we want to remain part of the United Kingdom. And that plain and simple fact. But how does a border down the Irish Sea make you less British than somebody in Manchester or Birmingham? It's separating us from the United Kingdom. Takes away our Britishness. Why is your identity so important to you? Because I'm British. That's it. I'm British. But there's people in Northern Ireland who still identify as Irish, even though Northern Ireland is part of the UK. No, well, we, we, but by being part of the UK, it doesn't stop you from identifying as Irish. So why does a border to the Irish Sea stop you from identifying as being British? No, I, I will say I'm Northern Irish. I, as a person, I'm Northern Irish. I'm Northern Irish, I'm British. But you can still be Northern Irish and British, even if there's a border to the Irish Sea. No, you can't. I think it, it is diminishing our Britishness. I'm very proud to be British. And to me, it is taking a bit away. But right now, I can see no benefit whatsoever with this protocol. So, so how does it take away from your British identity? People in Manchester or Birmingham can get things which we can't get because, you know, this, this protocol, this Irish sea border and everything else, you know. Uh, I want to be treated the same as somebody that lives in Glasgow, Birmingham, London. Simple as that. I have no interest in the Republic of Ireland or Europe whatsoever. But in the long run, if the protocol could result in more money in your back pocket... Listen, I'm happy pensioner and being uh, totally selfish about the whole thing. I'm more... It's, when I vote here, I vote unionist. I'm concerned more about the state of the union than I am about economics or anything. And that's my personal opinion. To me, the strength of the union is paramount. Why does your Britishness mean so much to you? I don't. People down south may be proud to be Irish. It's up to themselves. I'm just proud to be British. I'm just proud. I don't see why why I shouldn't be proud to be British. But the Northern Ireland Protocol doesn't stop you from identifying as British. It seems to. It does. We're not being treated the same as people who live in Glasgow, Birmingham, London. We're not being treated the same. It's chipping away at our Britishness. Some voices from Sandy Rowe on Saturday. Now, Barry, uh, people who are signing the petition, that's fair enough. But what about other people in Belfast? Are they against the protocol? Do they care? It depends who you speak to. Um, past Belfast was really, really busy on Saturday. The city was packed with Christmas shoppers and people visiting the Christmas markets. Pubs and restaurants were packed. Most people I spoke to in Belfast City Centre were more worried about the cost of things and not their identity. A lot of people told me that they have noticed the price of everything is going up and they seem to be linking this to Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now, I'm not so sure you can link the two as inflation is currently happening across the world. It's happening everywhere. It's not just in Northern Ireland. However, some other people did tell me that they did also notice a lot of items missing from the shelves in their supermarkets. And these Christmas shoppers on the streets of Belfast gave me their views on the protocol. The protocol will affect us, and it is affecting us, because we are not getting stuff sent to Northern Ireland. Well, I do work in a school. I work in a special needs school in Jordanstown, and we cannot get some of the stuff in, some food in, and it's taken longer. So children and families will be suffering if we can't get the stuff in. Does it have to be scrapped, though? I think so, yes. Definitely, yes, because I don't even know why they went down that road anyway. It seemed to be that they sacrificed Northern Ireland for England to get what they wanted, but Northern Ireland was sacrificed. Do you think Brexit's been actually really bad for Northern Ireland then? I do, yes, even though I voted to come out of it. I don't care and it hasn't changed my life any one way or the other. I, 
I just don't see any difference. I don't. I don't really don't know what all the fuss is about, apart from the constitutional aspect of it. You know, because I can understand maybe the unionist population thinking that their identity's been taken away from them. But to be honest, to be honest I don't think it is. I've, I've, what I have noticed, I think, since this Brexit has happened, some prices in the shops have gone up. You know, whereas maybe you would have got something for a pound, it's now maybe one twenty, one thirty. There is a bit of a difference there, now. But apart from that, no, no difference at all. We have found that shops aren't getting in with the need in, and the prices are all going up, and um, they're not getting their stock in really, and it's just doing nothing to help us. What sort of prices have you noticed go up? Like what kind of goods? Everything. Everything. And then there's things that went up from one pound to one pound fifty. It's not just a couple of pence. It's 50p and 75p going on everything. So it is getting harder to, to live. My son, he bought stuff last year, cost say 300 for garage was doing. This year it was up 200 pound. Things like that are all <laughs> not just household stuff. Everything has gone up in price. So it has. So you think it's the Northern Ireland Protocols to blame for that, is it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Barry White reporting for the Pat Kenny Show. I C U M I. In case you missed it, on News Talk. It's less that I don't have the bandwidth to get hold of clean water, bottled water, but it's more. I kind of thought Ireland was a first world country. You know, you didn't think you had to be dealing with this in 2021, but apparently you do. Absolutely awfully discoloured, like brown, rack, awful. I wouldn't give it to my cat because I wouldn't want to be bringing my cat to the vet. Last week, a boil water notice was lifted in Gorey County, Wexford. It was one of a number of notices issued throughout the county since the summer months. Back in August, more than 50 people fell ill from an outbreak in the water, including bacteria linked to E. coli. Irish Water now says that following consultation with the HSE, residents can resume using the tap water. Just before the notice was lifted, I met with some of those living in Gorey to see how the situation has affected them. Oh, Josh, is it? How are you? How are you, Joe? Not too bad, mate. Good to see you. So, uh, do you want to show me what the situation is? Of course, Luke. Come on in. My name is Joseph Kyo. I live in Woodlands Manor in Gorey. Right, Josh, there it is today, right? It's nice and clean and everything else, but um, you don't know what's in it. And that's the problem. We, we simply can't drink it. Towards the end of the summer, uh, my wife got violently sick. She, she's a chef up in a, in a hospital in County Wicklow. And she was violently ill and was bedridden for a couple of days. And she did an online consultation with her doctor who said it sounded like a, 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 an E. coli or a viral, some semblance of a viral infection. And it was only then when we seen the uh, boil water notice and we were able to uh, realise then what it was. But the worst thing was I was giving my wife, uh, you know, uh, these isotonic drinks, these salt drinks, but I was using the tap water, so I was making it worse for her. It was vomiting and... Um, uh, everything that goes with it. Everything that goes with it, yeah, it was... Uh, very extreme, you know, very extreme. And, and you know, the, what made me feel worse was the fact that I exacerbated it by uh, giving her more water, you know. And, and she would normally drink a lot of tap water like with cordials and stuff. Uh, I generally don't, to be honest. But it's just simply not good enough in this day and age not to keep people informed. I mean, we, we were not too bad. She's an adult. But, I mean, for someone who has kids or whatever, it must have been an absolute nightmare. My name is Deborah Hinch and I live in Esmond Gardens in Gorey. It was about... Two months ago, one of the neighbours got really, really ill. She was really sick. She went up to the doctor anyway, and he told her, don't drink the water. And she said, I have been drinking the water because like, she wasn't buying bottled water. I drink bottled water most of the time, but um, actually having to use it for everything. I, we're not even sure if showering is safe at the moment. Trying to keep the small kids away from the water as well because they've become used to, you know, just turn the tap. Uh, it's just a nightmare at the moment. And so you're going into town, buying your bottles of water every week? Every day. <laughs> Some residents in Gorey speaking to me last week while a boil water notice was still in place. €100,000 has been invested by Irish Water into the Crea water treatment plant since August. 
Irish Water also says it has secured additional funding in principle for further works. But for the locals on the streets of the Wexford town, how frustrating have the past few months been? Firstly, the cost of buying the water. And would you go near drinking the tap water? No. No. After people got E. coli and that? Yeah, like my brother, my brother's children, ironically, <laughs> were two that ended up down in hospital and a neighbour of mine. So I kind of take it quite seriously. Buying bottled water and boiling any other water, even for the dog, pathetic. It's just organising as well, like, and it's frustrating, I suppose, having to go to the shop, have it all stocked. Well, yeah, it's cost me, I'd say, 15 euro a week just to keep the kids in water for school and stuff because there's no fresh drinking water in school either. Colour isn't bad, but there's a horrible taste of it and the smell as well, but even when you make tea. And going off having to buy the bottles, though, with weeks on end, like, I'm well, sure it's... What getting... we're doing is we're using, uh, we're boiling the water from the tops and then just filling the bottles again and refrigerating them and using them as we go on, you know. So how frustrating is it now with a young fella having to well, go off and buy bottled water all the time? always have to buy bottled water and some of the shops don't even have the water because there's so many people in Gorey buying the water that there's you'll have to buy the more expensive water. Your name and the shop? Uh, it's an actual Gorey, and uh, my name is Jigson. What are water sales like now recently due to the ongoing issues? It's really high now. Like, we are selling really good. Like, the, you know, the, you see, you can see, like, it's empty. So we're waiting for the new delivery by tomorrow. The shelves of the counter are just empty of big bottles of water? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. And are people coming in, buying in Keep bulk? Buying, like, three, four bottles. We had a bigger bottle, like, you know, 250, like, 5 litre. It's almost gone, like, three left. And are you finding it hard to get stock? It's really hard now, like, you know, it's supposed to get by today. Josh Crosby reporting for The Pat Kenny Show. Now, this week, Documentary on News Talk explored the extraordinary success of Irish Women in Harmony in Behind the Voices. Here's a short clip. Irish Women in Harmony is a great platform for women even starting out as well to come and join as well and be part of it all or follow us and see what we're doing. It's, it's, it's really a great thing and very important for, for young musicians starting out as well to, to be part of and to see where it can take them as well. I think, you know, I've as I said, when I heard of the group first, a lot of the names I'd never heard of before and I'm so familiar with them all and it's just given the exposure they all deserve, you know, starting out and the platform they deserve. It really is and a very important thing right now as well for women. It is a sense of community and it's something that like back in the day I would have absolutely loved to be part of as, as a young starting out singer-songwriter. Like a lot of the girls on there are like they're just starting out and it's just amazing for them to have that. You know, it's 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 from like, a you know, there's young, really young girls on there in their teens up to like, you know, we've got Moya Brennan, the queen of the, of the group, you know. So it's amazing that it spans over a couple of generations as well. But it, it just brings us all together in harmony and it's hugely supportive and um, and encouraging for women as well. Irish Women in Harmony is all about community, unity, empowerment, encouragement, support and passing on invaluable advice for the next generation. The piece of advice I can give is just never give up and follow your dreams and, and believe in yourself and follow your dreams and you will find your own path. You know, everyone is different in everything they do. So you can't actually, there's no formula to how it will happen. You just have to work hard. You have to love what you do and do it because you love it and because you have a passion for it. Because it isn't an easy, it's a very fickle industry. I'll say that. It really is. Yeah, you know, you don't know whether you're coming or going. When things start to happen, it's very exciting and amazing and rewarding. And and do it because you love it and share your art, you know, and believe in yourself. My first bit of advice definitely would be stick to what you want to be as an artist. Do not let anyone try and push you into like a different area that will make you really come through at the end. Because when you get up on that stage, you'll be proud of who you are. You'll be proud of your music. And that shines through. You know, don't be afraid to say no. I was at the start and I think maybe that's why I lost my way from being told that I can't pronounce my THs and stuff like that. And for being told that my voice was too loud. I wouldn't sing very loud and I just didn't have any character. I didn't have any distinction as me as an artist. And the sooner I realized that my own natural voice is very distinct, whether you like it or not. So I think for me, that would be something. Just stay true to yourself. Don't be afraid to say no. There is no easy access, especially if you want longevity, which is something that I strive for as an artist. I want my music to, when I'm dead and gone, still be able to be played and not be a genre that pops in and out of the industry. I want I want it to be there forever. My advice I would be to collaborate. Big advocate for that because so many people work alone. There is such joy to be found in collaborating and, and creating with people. 
And if you're creating with another woman, it's really special. Like my entire career has been collaboration with women and I, 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 it's been artistically satisfying to do that. It can really change for the better the way that you think and produce music. What an inspiring story from Documentary on Youth Talk. On Saturday, Off the Ball explores the benefits of playing multiple sports. Here's John Duggan and Mick Galway. There could be this argument that Ireland are never going to win a Rugby World Cup because if you think of New Zealand, rugby is everything there, isn't it, really, mainly? If you look at England for, 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 for soccer, is the main sport. I know they play cricket as well, but mainly it's soccer. I know they play rugby union, but soccer is the, the religion in England. Um, are we too small a country to be devil's advocate about it, to be playing all these multiple sports? And, you know, if we didn't have the GA, for example, would we have an amazing soccer team that can compete at an international level? Would we have an amazing rugby team? Or is it more important for society for kids to have fun playing multiple sports, to develop their, as Mickey said, their skills and their coordination and their and their different insight, and also to have fun as as, as teammates in different sports, should we be encouraging as a nation, Mick Galway, kids to play as many sports as possible? Absolutely, I I, I definitely think so. Um, you know, it's um, I remember I was growing up, and and you know, and we didn't have great facilities, but we had, I played soccer, I played basketball, I played a bit of handball. You know, all these all these sports helped me, and I must say. I played a lot of basketball, and and and, and basketball is, is a great game, and you know, and it, it certainly some of the skills that I would have picked up in basketball, I brought it into into rugby because communication is huge, um, peripheral vision is important. You know what I mean? And 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 literally defence and what have you. You know what I mean? So all those sports are, are are fantastic. But yes, you know, I would encourage kids to play all sports, try all sports, and then maybe eventually you, you will find your way. Like I only, as I said earlier, I only I only came across rugby by chance. I remember I, I was playing basketball in Killarney and I was actually training with the um, St. Vincent senior team and I was only 17 and I remember um, I used to have to cycle to Farm 4 and the, the winter came in and I, the boys said, look, we're, we're going down to Castle Island, you know, after rugby, so I said, I'll go along and, and I actually played a match the following day. You know what I mean? They had, they had a, there was a monster trial and I played in it and, and the rest was history. But certainly, um, I would encourage kids to play all sports and, and, and you know um, you know we can still compete like it's great that we beat the, 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 the All Blacks a few weeks ago I know I suppose the real test of any any international rugby team is how they get out of the World Cup and, and you know remember going into the last World Cup we were um, we were ranked number one the only ranking that, that counts is, is is the ranking when you when you come finish in, at the World Cup but um Certainly, no. Look, and I look at all the great players, particularly in GA, maybe down through the years that I've seen that I've played with, and in both um, football and hurling. If we, you know, if we didn't have football and hurling, I would imagine that we'd be up there and better than the All Blacks, and and and, and probably in the same in soccer because um, the amount of people that are playing GA is fantastic, and 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 you know, it's 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 a it's a phenomenal game. I live I live in Kilkenny here now, and I just love going along to and watching the hurling. All my kids play it, and um, it's just fantastic. But look. I think there's there's room for all sports and bottom line, if I was to give any advice to any kid, just try them all and and, and you know don't like don't commit to something 100 percent maybe when you're yeah. 10 or 11 or 12. You know what I mean? Just just keep trying everything and and you will find your 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 sweet spot in the end. Mick Galway from off the ball. I C U M I. In case you missed it, on News Talk. Now this week, Bobby Kerr visited Hogan's Turkey Farm. For down to business. That's the sound of an American bronze turkey. There's a whole load of them here. I'm down here on Hogan's farm uh, up near Kells in County Meath. I was here about four years ago and I said I had to come back. I'm delighted to be joined by turkey farmer Paul Hogan uh, from Hogan's farm. Paul, you're very welcome to the programme. Hi, Bobby. Yeah, you're very welcome to Hogan's farm, Bobby. Now listen, it's chaos here with all these birds. Firstly, you better tell us what we have here. Um, there's a lot of turkeys. And first we'll start with this breed here. that are They're out in the open air. They're able to be fed. They can stay out at night. They're wandering around among the trees. It's a lovely, lovely natural environment. Tell us more. Yes, Bobby. These birds are the American strain of, of turkey. They are, are a Hogan's Farm woodland bronze turkey. They're out day and night, so... They're uh, outdoor reared to the full extent, right. where they're, they're not like conventional free range where they're brought in at night. These birds are they're fed out in the wild and they have water out in the wild, and they, they prefer to sleep out in the woodlands under the trees at night. 
How many birds are here? I, like, I'm just to explain to our listeners. I'm looking at turkeys here almost as far as the eye can see, but there's a couple of thousand, is there? Yeah, no, there's around 1,600, uh, Bobby, right. here. And it's just that the, the area is so vast to have tons of space, to have uh, about four times the space recommended yeah. that, that they need. Yeah. This is just one of the lines that you're doing. Uh, I know you supply many of our of our multiples with turkeys. So the I suppose the conventional turkey... Um, You'll be about what fifty to seventy thousand birds this this Christmas. Yes, Bobby, about seventy-five to eighty thousand birds wow. is the throughput fully. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And you know, if there's if there's about a million turkeys sold um, every Christmas, it, it it seems to me that there's a real art around it. That you've got a, the planning must be meticulous. Yeah, we, we would start planning our, our whole season in fe- in February every year for the following Christmas yeah. because um, there's a lot into it on the hatch days and f- from turkeys, we bring all our birds in day old so it's actually a brother of mine, Finton and Hilda that look after them from at that stage and then we, we rear them all and we have our own plant on, on, on the farm here, our own slaughter plant okay. so we start slaughtering birds in early December so it's it's a it's a whole nine month process really. Wow. Yeah. And when I'm looking at the turkeys here, Paul, I'm seeing different sizes. Obviously, you know, different families want different sizes. How do you arrange to maybe sure that you have all the different sizes you need? Yeah, well you have to in February we would take from experience, we're in the business now over fifty years, so there's a lot of years of experience, so we would every year in February sit down and see the trend and try and, and stick with the trend. So, like for instance, when COVID hit, you had an awful lot more smaller boards needed because families were split up and there were okay. several di- dinners. Where this year, Christmas 21, we're expecting a demand for bigger boards. So we would, would we would put that into the system and hopefully we're right. Yeah, yeah. We've heard in you know lots of commodity costs this year, Paul. Um, you know, we're hearing about energy costs. We're hearing about inflation all over the place. Have you faced increased costs in your business? Yeah, the, the, the cost this year are very substantial. It, it's probably the toughest year yet on cost. We just don't know where it's going to end. But I think everyone is in the same boat, really, you know. So. Yeah. Um, the trend as well with turkeys now where people order crowns, they get boned and rolled. Uh, does that mean that there's a lot of added value turkey production? Yes, I suppose there was a time when we were doing birds and it was all whole birds, where now we see our sales is definitely probably 50-50 now from added value to whole birds. Yeah. Still, a lot of people like the look and feel of a whole bird on the, on the kitchen table at Christmas uh, for the whole presentation aspect, but, but there is a big a turn, a swing towards added value. Right. And another thing that goes with added value, I suppose, is labour. So tell me about staff, because again, we're hearing lots of challenges uh, in in all sectors, in hospitality, you know, in entertainment, in manufacturing. Um, You're probably not alien to that either. Yes, I was hoping you wouldn't mention that, Bobby. (laughs) But uh, yeah, labour is is a huge problem this year, we, we, we see so far, but... I suppose we have to get down to it and, and get to it and, and get on with it. We can't push out Christmas Day, unfortunately. Yeah. So we have to be on time. Turkey farmer Paul Hogan from Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. And of course, you can tune into Bobby every Saturday afternoon from 11 till 1. On Sunday, Talking History explored the life and legacy of the great Roman general Scipio Africanus. Here's Patrick Egan. Adrian, I wonder, could you talk to us about uh, the campaign against uh, Hannibal? Uh, he became consul, I think, at the age of 31. So that was, I think, a, a great achievement. Uh, he went off to Sicily and he seems to have engaged in some brilliant manoeuvres against the Carthaginians, attacking their attacking their, their camps in the middle of the night, just, you know, I think burning them to the ground, doing things that some thought were maybe unethical or, or maybe a bit uh, immoral, but uh, that we're getting certainly great results. Yes, I mean, again, it's everything coming together. You've got to remember this is after years and years of this massive war going on, and the Roman army and its commanders have changed, and they've copied, whether it's weaponry, whether it's tactics, but they're also just far more experienced. You know, Some of the men he leads off to invade North Africa are the survivors from Cannae who'd been sent off to Sicily as a punishment, and then they get sent off to Africa as well unto him. But it means they've been soldiers for well over a decade. They are extremely well-drilled. They are pretty angry and browned off as well, but they, um, they're they not the easy prey 
that Hannibal had faced early on in the war and that the advantage has just changed. But Hannibal and his army is still there in Italy and the, the Romans win this war on other fronts. They win it in Sicily, they win it in Spain, and then by threatening North Africa. And one of the striking things is that whereas the Romans have this citizen army so that everybody can be called up, and yes, they have lots of allies and they'll find them, the Carthaginians rely on allies and mercenaries and hired professionals. Each Carthaginian army tends to be unique, and Hannibal's one is exceptionally good, but none of the other Carthaginian commanders can quite match either his ability, but also particularly the quality of his troops and the, the degree to which they're, they're integrated as a team. Because the men Hannibal had led into Italy in 218 had been serving under him, under his father, for quite a long time fighting in Spain, and particularly the high command. So you've got, like a, like a sports team, a very well-practiced group who know each other's strengths and weaknesses, trust each other, can work together superbly well. Other Carthaginian armies aren't like that. So the advantage has shifted very much to the Romans. And when you have someone as imaginative as careful at planning, but also as ruthless as Scipio, you can defeat both the, the main army sent against you very, very easily. I mean, it's almost dismissive. And even when Hannibal comes back, it's quite striking that at Zama itself, he deploys his army in three lines. And each line is effectively formed by a different, the remnants of a different Carthaginian army, the survivors with his own men from Italy, the survivors of that, the veterans from there in reserve. And he doesn't even address them all. You know, they're treated separately. They're under their own commanders. They're very much three separate groups that you haven't quite integrated into an army. So Hannibal doesn't have the force he'd had in the past because it's just been ground down. But he's forced to return to North Africa because the, the home government at Carthage is threatened with Scipio on their doorstep and he's beaten all their other um, forces ready to defend the, the main cities. So they call Hannibal back. So Hannibal is never actually beaten decisively in Italy. But strategically, the Romans have just cut him off and um, reduced him to a smaller and smaller part of the peninsula and then forced his recall home when you'll get the confrontation at Zama itself. And Adrian, it's what you see as well, and maybe in a contrast to Hannibal's troops, is that the Roman army under Scipio is, is, is better trained, it's in better physical shape, that he seems to have been able to, to prepare the, the fighting unit in such a way that uh, they were going to be more than a match for their opponents. Yes, they are. And you can see from the manoeuvres at Zama itself, Hannibal is depicted as pretty much staking everything on this mass attack by elephants. And the elephants are not very well trained. Many of them have been caught quite recently. When they panic and fail, he doesn't really have an answer because unlike his earlier battles in Italy, he doesn't have an advantage in numbers of cavalry anymore because, as mentioned earlier, Scipio has gone and arranged and has persuaded many of the Numidian allies to defect. So he's got the advantage of a better balanced force, more cavalry, and also the legions and the Italian and Latin allies with them very well drilled, very well trained, and also all from, from essentially one culture. You know, they all speak the same language. They all know how to do things their way, instead of the fairly disparate group that Hannibal's got by this stage. And, you know, Scipio is able to keep pressing forward. There's even the, the sort of the, the impression that Hannibal's plan is to just wear the Romans down and then let his third line of veterans take them out. But it doesn't work that way because the Romans are too good. They maneuver, they reinforce their line, and they grind him down instead. So it ends up there aren't, there isn't really a clever Hannibal moment in the Battle of Zama. There isn't really a trick left up his sleeve. It, it, he is by this time outclassed, and he's been put in an almost impossible position. Some fascinating insights from Talking History. And of course, you can tune into Patrick every Sunday evening from 7 to 8. Okay, I'm going to leave you with now some So You Think You're an Adult. Here's Barbara Scully, Declan Buckley and Sean Moncrief. Have a great weekend. So I don't think necessarily their sex life is in trouble. I think he has just developed a bad habit. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's any more than that. And no, I, think I, that I, I don't think trouble is, is the right word. I think it's more like it's become uh, repetitive and it, it's become kind of, it, it's, it's the same all of the time. Mm. And, and it ends. And it, it, look, it, it doesn't matter who's the first to disengage. At the moment of disengagement, somebody's left behind going, 
Oh, is it okay. over then? Yeah. And that's the feeling that's causing the problem. It's yeah, because she said, doesn't say have sex. She says when we are intimate. intimate. That's yeah. a very telling word, I think, because that's what she's looking for, is intimacy. And that's what she feels. Yeah. And she feels, yeah. and then she feels but you he know, is no again, longer intimate because he's intimate with his phone. Yeah, I know. But sometimes you have yeah. to, you know what I mean? It would be lovely if all these, you know, if, if all these things happened when you expected them to happen the way you expected them to happen. But what I'm saying to her is that, you know, I know what she wants and it's to me seems extremely reasonable. But sometimes you just have to be the one who's going to, you know, manipulate that a little bit or, you know, engineer it a little bit so that it does happen. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt here in that he's just picking up the phone because that's what he's now got used to doing. And I think that if she initiates and I think what happens, what has happened if she's that angry, as she says she is, she's just now, as she said, picking up her phone as well. So the two of them are now on these parallel. So it's up to somebody to cross the road. And since he doesn't seem to know there's a problem, the only one who can do it is her. Yeah. Um, so therefore, and I would go back to saying, Start initiating a conversation. Use humour, use whatever you want. Use massage oil, use whatever you want to get his attention back so that you're breaking that habit of him picking up the phone immediately afterwards. Uh, or else tell him the next time you're going to be intimate, let's leave the phones outside the bedroom and see what happens. Uh, a few comments from uh, the listeners. Why are women always expecting less, uh, accepting less respect? Maybe stop being intimate with him unless he respects her. I would never accept that. It's not a habit, it's disrespect, uh, says Laura. Somebody else suggests yeah. she should have you don't bring me flowers hours playing on repeat on her phone <laughs> uh, I just remember I remember my girlfriend had to go at me one morning when the first thing I did was go on the phone made me cop on and I'm much more conscious of being on my phone in company but especially in bed with her uh, somebody else suggests uh, compliment his performance no man can resist bragging about how good in bed he is uh, Jerry says hide the phone uh, and uh, uh, before getting jiggy uh, someone else says he's probably just checking the football scores. Uh, Annie says... Oh, that's okay, sir. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Annie suggests, say to him, hey, Mr. Floppy, where are you going? Guaranteed <laughs> to get his attention. <laughs> and uh, Eugene says that lady should text the husband and tell him she's not finished yet. <laughs> <laughs> that's very good. That's like very that. good. I see you. M. I. In case you missed it. On News Talk. Considering the role technology will play in the future of education is now a key focus for school leaders. At Exertus Ireland, together with Microsoft, we're here to support schools every step of the way with powerful tools to help create brighter futures. Talk to us today about solutions for your school. Visit exertus.ie forward slash Microsoft Teaching and Learning. Exertus.ie forward slash Microsoft Teaching and Learning.